Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Emerging markets promised investors better returns and broader diversification. But growth has stalled in recent years with heightened volatility and uncertainty. This week, we look into what lies in store for this crucial slice of world markets. I want to know what risks and opportunities are involved with investing in emerging markets and what role they should play in our portfolio. And later we answer the dumb question of the week. How do ETFs actually work? Okay, let's get into it. So emerging markets comprise a seemingly quite random collection of countries which are in some way developing. Now, this includes some of the most populated countries on the planet, like China, India, Russia, Mexico, and also some really important places geopolitically, like South Africa and Taiwan. And altogether, I believe emerging markets account for roughly 39% of world GDP. And when you look at the total stock market, so the all-country world index, it's about 12% of that. So, Robin, let's just clarify this a bit. What do we mean by emerging markets? So generally what we're thinking is this is a country which doesn't have a particularly developed economy. So generally the people in that society will have a lower average income than in developed markets. Often they're countries where much of the GDP isn't generated by services. So, for example, if you look at the UK or if you look at the US, manufacturing only accounts for a small percentage of total GDP whereas services account for about 80% of GDP generation. So there are lots of hallmarks which mark out a country as being developed, but it's one of these things where you know it if you see it. But there certainly is disagreement amongst the index providers of what constitutes EM. Yeah, I mean, there are some strange ones like South Korea and Taiwan are classed as EM, and I'd have thought they'd have kind of grown out of that by now. South Korea is, you know, a very developed country and high-income country. And different index providers classify it differently. So, for example, MSCI still classifies South Korea as an emerging market country, whereas if you go to FTSE Russell, which is tracked by Vanguard funds, for example, that classifies it as a developed country. And they actually switched over the classification quite a long time ago. I actually looked up the origin of the term emerging markets, and it's quite interesting where it came from. So in 1981, Antoine van Achtmael, that is spot on pronunciation, of the World Bank, he went to a meeting at Solomon Brothers in New York and proposed a new global equity investment fund for stocks. And he originally pitched it as the third world equity fund. Now that didn't sound very nice. So they come up with a nice marketing term instead, which is where the term emerging markets actually came from originally. And it's stuck ever since. I think that's a great story. And I think it's interesting that people didn't want to call it third world. And even emerging, I think, is a little bit of a weird term, because what it suggests is that this is a country undergoing a process of becoming developed. And I think that's also a problem with emerging market as a kind of asset class, if you like, or a subcategorization of equity. Yeah, it's not an inevitable process, is it? No, I don't think it is inevitable. And it also assumes that countries will want to go through that process and become like the US or like the UK. And that simply may not be the case. Maybe they don't like the governance of the West, or at least the way countries are governed in the West. It is annoying, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But there is an assumption here, a cultural assumption, that they want to be like we are. You know, I don't think that's necessarily true in many cases. But it's also, I guess, a political thing. You know, do you want to be like America? Do you want to be that kind of society? Because inevitably that affects the governance of the equity market, the bond market, 
And many countries, I think, probably wouldn't. So I think from a Western perspective as investors, the promise was that emerging markets would see rapid growth as they kind of adopted technologies developed in the West. And that huge spike in GDP, which they were meant to see, would translate into greater stock market returns, which, you know, in the West, we could cream a little bit of that off and take it as profits. And it hasn't really played out that way, at least over the last 10 years or so since the financial crisis. Well, I think the big step backs have been Obviously, the recent example is Russia, and then the other one is is China, which is very much sui generis. It's really a very separate entity. Uh, is it emerging? Is it developed? I mean, in some ways, it's two countries, China. You know, it's a developed country, and it's, you know, if you look at the urban population, but then if you look at the rural population, it's very underdeveloped. So I heard it described as... It's not an emerging country anymore. It's obviously a developed country, but its market is emerging because the government, you know, can take kind of arbitrary decisions to crush certain companies and it doesn't have the institutions in place, which we do in Western markets. But from the kind of plumbing aspect of creating a fund which tracks Chinese equity, there are also certain constraints. For example, the shares have to have a certain amount of liquidity. You have to be able to buy and sell them and you have to be able to move capital into and out of the country freely both of which are slightly suspect in some cases. So I think that's why, very gradually, China's weighting in MSCI indices, for example, has been gradually ramped upwards. So it's happened, I think, in two stages, and now it's almost equivalent to its market capitalization, which is, of course, how these things are constructed. So really, it's the size of the market which determines its weight in the index. Does China kind of dominate these emerging market indices now? Yeah. So for example, if you look at the MSCI weights, as of today, China makes up 30% of the MSCI EM index. So it is a big chunk. A very big chunk. And it used to be, you know, I think almost 40%. But of course, they had a little bit of an equity accident recently. Taiwan's about 16%. And of course, that's not part of China. They have to live happy in this uh, same indices. Indeed, not very happy next to each other, I suspect. And India's 13, South Korea 13, this is MSCI, Brazil 6, and then the rest is about 22%. So very much dominated by China. In fact, to first order, if you buy an EM index, you're buying China. I mean, it's kind of like when you look at buying a developed market indices, it's dominated by the US, even more so actually than China and EM. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you will get that concentration. But for the same reason why America dominates the developed market indices, China has earned its place because it's done an incredible job of growing its capital markets. And, you know, they have had very successful companies and they have huge markets which are very profitable. So I think it's successful for a reason. Uh, But there are certain people, obviously, who aren't too happy allocating capital to China for ethical reasons, or perhaps they disagree with the politics of of China. It's interesting, isn't it? Some people go the other way. I remember you saying to me that you talk to a lot of people who basically only own two countries, the US and China, and kind of ignore the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, for example, in the power hours, I speak to people who have huge allocations to China. One of them was interesting because he was actually giving me sources of news which would contradict what we generally hear in the West, which took a very different spin on some of the stories. And, you know, it was interesting. I always like to kind of challenge my own preconceptions. So that was a great way of doing that. 
But I think it's always good to have a wide diversity of opinion. I mean, that's what makes a market, of course. It seems risky to me, though, to just really focus on those two poles of the world, because who knows where the growth is going to come from next. And that is, of course, the idea. I mean, we should say the reason why emerging markets as an asset class is attractive is that the idea is these are countries which are rapidly growing their GDP. They're rapidly becoming much more wealthy. They have a growing middle class, for example, who spend more money, which they now have. And the idea is that somehow that growth feeds into the earnings growth of the companies themselves. Now, there are a couple of reasons why that doesn't actually pan out in practice, but that's the idea. So what are those reasons? (laughs) Why hasn't it delivered the returns we want? (laughs) Well, there's an interesting paper I read by Rob Arnott, which actually talked about why that doesn't happen. Now, one reason is that imagine you've got companies which take all the income and kind of slice it up into a kind of pie, right? So it's like each company takes some of the GDP growth and earns some fraction of it. What actually happens in practice is that as a country's GDP grows, there are more companies which are being created. So company creation increases, if you like. So everybody gets a smaller slice of the pie. So you're just subdividing it as it grows. That's kind of a dilution effect. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But I guess if you own the whole market via an ETF, then you should get the benefits of the entire market. But when we actually look at what happens, if you look at EM ETFs, they haven't actually grown faster than other markets, despite GDP being higher. So perhaps this is a governance thing. Perhaps it's corruption. Perhaps it's more share of the GDP going to people, but also certain members of government. (laughs) It may be an inefficiency of the capital flowing to companies or money flowing to people, which is probably a good thing. And also there are often big state-owned enterprises in these markets, which are kind of anti-competitive in some ways. Well, anti-competitive is one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that they're actually more geared towards servicing their customers and looking after their employees. You know, shareholders get the kind of worst treatment, if you like. Whereas in developed markets like the US, it's very much oriented to servicing the shareholder. Employees come in second place. Customers come in second place. Employees come nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you've got to make a product that people like, I guess. But the point is that shareholders really come first. So maybe that's why state-owned enterprises are not seen as a good thing. And certainly from a shareholder point of view, that's probably true. The interesting thing is, in the data I've seen, that GDP growth is not directly related to equity returns from the stock market. In fact, it looks like the faster GDP grows, it's actually kind of worse for the stock market, which seems bizarre. Well, what's certainly true is that when you have a big crash in GDP, a recession, that generally has a negative impact on equities in that country. But you're right. It's certainly not true that if you have high GDP, it feeds through to high earnings growth for companies. It should, but I think the relationship's a pretty weak one. And this is why the equity market is not the economy. But look, if we look at the long-term returns for the EM index, it doesn't work over five years. So EM has returned 6%, DM has returned 12 you know, twice as much. Yeah, you're taking a big hit there. Because America has just done so well recently. And again, over the last 10 years, America has done really well. 10% in DM versus 3.4 for EM. And then you have to go all the way back to 2000, so 22 years. And then we finally start to see EM outperforming DM. So it's 8.5% per year for EM, 6.3% for DM. But really, the difference isn't huge. And do we see greater volatility in the EM indices? 
Yep, so you know I'm a big fan of risk-adjusted return. Who isn't, Roman? Who is not a fan of that? <laughs> but the idea with risk-adjusted return is how many units of return do you get for every unit of grief that you have to take? Which is volu- <laughs> you know, right. so, so that's the kind of grief index, if you like, which is how much the price changes on average each year. I like to think of it as in a way like a boxing, like pound for pound, who's the best fighter in the world? Yeah, okay, so that's, that's a good way of looking at it. So if we look at risk-adjusted return, so we divide the return by the volatility, well, there, emerging markets come out really badly. So over a 10-year period, the sharp ratio, as it's called for EM, is 0.24. And for developed markets, it's 0.73. So it's three times as much. And a higher sharp ratio is better. Yeah, the idea is that you want more return with little grief or little volatility. So effectively, you could buy developed markets, lever up a bit and significantly outperform emerging markets for the same level of volatility. Exactly. And if you look at things like crash sizes, for emerging markets, the biggest crash was between 2007 and 2008, where it fell by 65% for the MSCI EM index, whereas developed markets fell a little bit less, 58%. So even by that measure, it's still not looking you know, like you're going to sleep well at night. Do you think we're maybe being a little bit simplistic in grouping all these emerging markets together? Because they are a really diverse bunch of countries. I read a nice article in The Economist which tried to separate them out into sort of three buckets. The first was countries where their growth had primarily come from exports. So China was a big example of that over its history. South Korea, Taiwan, and then recently Bangladesh and Vietnam are kind of in that bucket. The second was where growth is a bit more service-led. So that's places like India and Kenya Indonesia. And the third was the ones that are the big commodity exporters. So obviously you've got Brazil, Russia, South Africa. Does that make a bit more sense if we group them out separately? I think from an investment point of view, I think that makes a lot more sense. But you've got to remember that ETFs have to be marketed. And I think the actual grouping that we get is very much what will work from a marketing perspective. So I don't know if you remember, there was a grouping called BRIC. I remember very well, yeah. That was all the rage in the 2000s. That's right. And I think the whole point of that marketing was that it was a brilliantly pronounceable acronym. Yeah, but it was spelled wrong. It was Brazil, Russia, India, China. Come on, stick a K on the end, Korea or Kenya or something, right? Just make it work. But I think I think people forget that that's why, you know, we get these labels and groupings. It's because something can be marketed more easily. Yeah, it's interesting that the BRIC acronym came about in 2001. And then eventually it did actually become a political grouping of those countries. And I believe South Africa joined in, I think it was 2010. I'm actually going off memory here. I haven't researched this. <laughs> Should we check it? No, I think it's right. <laughs> I think South Africa joined in about 2010. And so then it became the BRICS. And, and look, I think marketing's a really important aspect of creating funds. But at some point, you have to also consider what kind of makes sense economically. And if you do want diversification, you know, EM just doesn't do a very good job. You know, in a crash, it falls alongside developed market equity. In fact, it crashes more. So, you know, I think the grouping that we've got isn't particularly useful. And there are 24 countries in the MSCI Emerging Markets grouping. I think it originally started with 10 back in the 80s. And at that point, it was less than 1% of the all-country world index. And now, as I said in the start, it's 12%. So it has grown both in the number of countries included and in its importance to world markets. But of course, the irony is that if you do buy an EM index and a country is really successful in terms of growing its economy and its stock market, then by definition, it'll move out of the index. 
I think China doesn't really fit in the index right now. No. Has a country ever gone like relegated from developed markets back into EM? Like, could could we be the first? Could Britain? Can we do that? <laughs> <laughs> People have been joking about the North Atlantic peso. You know, the, the the volatility of sterling has been so high recently. It's trading like an emerging market currency. But certainly, things go down from emerging markets into frontier. Frontier. I like that. Is that if emerging markets are just a little bit too boring for you? So you want to go even riskier? Well, funnily enough, yes. People used to say that, you know, once EM has rallied, so let's say you have a really long rally, equity markets in developed markets pretty much, you know, stop rallying as quickly. So you'd move to something which is even more risky, which is emerging markets. And then once they've rallied, where do you go? Well, that'll be frontier markets. So what's frontier markets? What are they? What's some examples? So the idea here is that these are frontier markets, which are even smaller. It's very much based on market cap and also small turnover. So if you track these markets, usually they'll be quite expensive to trade. So you're not going to get a tracking fee of 0.1% for these. You know, it'll be 0.6 or higher, probably. Also, there might be market restrictions, which make them not eligible for EM status. But still, they are investable. So you, you can get money in and out and you can trade some fairly liquid stocks. I want names, Roman. Which countries are we talking about? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. OK, so Vietnam. So for MSCI, Vietnam is 30% of the index. Morocco, 10. Bahrain, 9. Iceland, 8. Iceland? I've been to Iceland. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought of it as frontier. It feels like you're flying into the moon when you fly in there in the winter. It does look like a moonscape, doesn't it? Romania, so that's 6% of the index. I like all these countries. I'm going to buy some frontier markets. Okay. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> but, but certainly countries have moved out of EM into frontier. I mean, was Iceland when all their banks exploded in the financial crisis? Did that drop it down? Well, I think with Iceland, it's just the fact that it's a very small market. So here, probably, there's not much liquidity in the market. Yeah, I think Bjork makes up about 60% of their market. <laughs> Very strange singer, but I do like her music, I have to say. Me too. So you do get some mobility of countries from Frontier to EM, for example. This happened to Kuwait in December 2019, and it was because its market grew more developed. So it kind of got promoted up a division. Yeah, it got promoted up a division. So it's kind of like a football team that becomes more successful. Yeah, it's the Newcastle of countries. I mean, Newcastle are actually owned by an emerging market country now. Is that a football analogy, Michael? <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot you uh, hate football. <laughs> and everyone who likes football. <laughs> Okay, so I think we have a pretty good understanding about what emerging markets actually means. But let's think a bit about what the prospects are for these countries going forward. A lot of people I know are talking about tighter Fed policy and raising interest rates in the West being bad for EM. So generally, one of these crises hits emerging markets as the Fed enters a rate hiking cycle. The reason why this happens is that if money flows back to the United States, because when people are scared, usually fear comes with rate hikes then they put their money back into the US because it's seen as being safe and stable. They pull their money out of riskier assets like emerging markets. So all of this hot money flows out of the country, both in the equity market, but also the sovereign bond market. Right. So it's kind of capital flight, isn't it? The capital flight and also the worries that if there is a shakeout, that EM will come out worst. And if a lot of money is pulled out, it kind of can crash the stock market. So you've got a lot of sellers and the cost of borrowing for the governments go up but also banks, and then a tightening up of credit conditions, and that can spark a crisis in the country. So this always plays out rather badly for some EM countries, particularly the weaker ones. 
the question at the moment is, you know, how much debt has they got? How much corporate debt is there? How much of it is issued in foreign currency, hard currency, dollars? For example, if you look at Turkey, it's got a huge amount of sovereign debt, which is issued in dollars. So the question is, can they carry on servicing that debt? Will their GDP be able to feed enough income into those companies to be able to service the debt? So, you know, there is a question about stability. I mean, Turkey's being pursuing some really unconventional monetary policies. I mean, unconventional probably doesn't even do it justice. <laughs> That's right. So what they think is, or at least what the president thinks, Erdogan. and any of the uh, bank governors who disagree with him strangely lose their jobs. But he thinks that instead of raising interest rates when inflation is high, he thinks you should lower it. And unfortunately, the currency market doesn't agree with him. So we've seen the lira tank, we've seen the equity market tank. And inflation at 50%. Yeah, I mean, the official numbers are 50%, but you know, I'm not sure what the actual inflation rate would be. It's terrible for the people in Turkey, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I have some clients, actually, who are Turkish, and you know, they tell me about how atrocious it is. So I think having these kind of unconventional policies are one of the hallmarks of EM. The fact that you don't have an independent central bank, and it's just another case of bad governance. So I think that's one of the fundamental problems, which is that when you do enter these regime shifts, countries, companies which have weak balance sheets are the ones which tend to suffer the most. So we are seeing a regime shift. We are entering a new world in which interest rates will be higher, in which growth will probably be a bit weaker. Maybe we'll get recessions as well. And in that kind of environment, you want the kind of battleship balance sheet. You don't want a kind of flimsy dinghy. So, you know, I think that's why people are more cautious about EM, certainly in the kind of medium term. And we're also seeing some countries already starting to sort of wobble a bit. So I know Sri Lanka actually defaulted on its debt, I believe, last week. That's right. Argentina's had to restructure its bonds. And, you know, we could see this roll out to a lot of countries. And that's the worry. But I mean, some people are saying this is an opportunity. So, for example, Jeremy Grantham says the real value you see in markets, if you go for value stocks, is EM value. If you look at the valuations for countries like China, it's trading at a massive discount. So Charlie Munger, for example, has bought lots of Alibaba stock. But then I saw, I saw recently he just... He halved his allocation. That's, that's right. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's 96 or whatever he is, even older, maybe. He can't afford to wait for the long term. No, that's right. Long term for him is very different to yours and my long term, I think. I hope. So yeah, I think I think some people see this as an opportunity, these kind of depressed valuations. But, you know, personally, I'd still be a little bit more cautious going into this new regime. I think it will be a little bit wobbly for a while. I mean, the way I think of it is the market is pricing in higher risk. So China's valuations are lower on a multiple basis than in the West. But that's because we've seen the government there take a swing at shareholders and they've got this property bubble, which could pop. They've been trying to deflate it slowly. Like it's pricing in risk that is actually there. Yeah, I, I guess really it depends on whether you believe the narrative. You know, do you believe that the government can control the crisis because of the way China's governed? Or do you think that ultimately this is like like a law of physics, that if you have one sector like property development, which is basically imploding, that it'll eventually collapse the rest of the economy. Here's what I think. And I'm, you know, not qualified to give an opinion, but when's that ever stopped anyone, right? So <laughs> I think the property bubble can probably be controlled in China, but it will be at the expense of the foreign bondholders and equity holders in those companies. Yeah, I think as a foreign investor, clearly you'll be at the back of the queue when it comes to Chinese assets. 
I mean, we already saw that with the Evergrande bonds. They were prioritizing the onshore bondholders, the Chinese people who owned the bonds and the people actually waiting for houses rather than us in the West who owned a bit of the company. Yeah, that's right. You've got the onshore and the offshore market. And clearly the offshore market was the one where spreads have really widened and effectively you know, that market is unserviceable in terms of there won't be much issuance in that foreign debt market from China, I don't think, because the spreads are just crazily high at the moment. I mean, who would buy it? And I guess still looking at the risk side of the equation, the high inflation that we're seeing globally, a lot of people are saying that's even more of a risk for emerging markets where food costs, for example, are a bigger share of people's spending. Yeah, the consumption basket, if you look at EM, food is a much bigger component. You know, in developed markets, it tends to be much more things like housing, which are the biggest component, or transportation, or a combination of those two. Or hummus. Hummus. <laughs> so carry on. <laughs> <laughs> no, funnily enough, it's onions in India. That's what causes riots. If onion prices shoot up, it's what really causes instability, you know, political instability. Onion prices are the gas prices of India. That's right, yeah. They get really angry if onion prices go up, because, you know, it's such an important part of cuisine in India. People love these little anecdotes you tell, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. I guess a lot of it comes down to whether they're importers of things like crude oil or whether they're actually producers. So, for example, if you are a producer like Brazil, well, you know, you're not going to be negatively impacted by the rising price of oil. Whereas India, for example, which is a big importer of oil, will clearly have a big tax effectively levied on the country's growth. I think that's why Sri Lanka was the first domino to fall, is they're a massive importer of commodities. Yeah, and they, I guess they've got less spare capacity in terms of the size of the economy. Whereas India, at least, you know, is a huge economy in the EM terms. So it could weather a bit more energy volatility. So is that where one of the opportunities is when we think about those buckets we mentioned earlier, those commodity exporting emerging markets are potentially in a stronger position now because of the massive rise we've seen in commodity prices? Yeah, definitely. So the kind of companies you'd be looking for would be the ones where the valuation is depressed by the fact that EM is being pummeled. But at the same time, the country itself is an exporter of energy. So that might be Brazil, for example. So you could do that either at the country level or perhaps you could do the single stocks if you're into that kind of thing. But for most retail investors, you're not going to be able to actually buy the physical stocks from an emerging market country. The whole point of ETFs is that it's finally let investors all over the world get exposure to these kind of more exotic asset classes, if you like. It's a great thing and a really interesting thing as investors, isn't it? It's long gone are the days where we just sort of buy our domestic index and hope for the best. Yeah, although some people I speak to still do that. <laughs> right, the home country bias is strong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for pensions in the UK, it's just crazy. You know, you get very little interest in global markets. There's still a huge overweight for UK stocks, which I think is a mistake. But certainly for emerging markets, I think, for example, you created an investment for your daughter, didn't you? Yeah, we have a junior ISA for her and we've sort of loaded it up with ESG global indices. And it's interesting that there's this freedom index, which is available now, which your daughter might approve of when she's older, when she's going through her right on period. <laughs> yeah, before she gets cynical and old and just wants all the oil companies again. But I actually interviewed Perth Toll, who's a really interesting character. And she was making the point that it's not just about returns. If you actually look at governance and freedom indices, like, for example, freedoms of free speech, freedoms of democracy and voting. Yeah, freedoms of democracy and voting and free press. Yeah, free press. And if you look at countries where you get greater freedom, 
as measured by certain criteria, she showed that you actually got better returns as a result. And of course, you know, we've seen what's happened in China. And since they did what they did with their market, their equity market, basically destroying it, they've underperformed Taiwan, for example. I'm glad it's that way around. It would be horrible <laughs> if the industry showed that, you know, these authoritarians were the ones that generated the best returns. Yes, it's lovely to have your uh, prejudices confirmed, isn't it? So certainly in the short term, there are challenges that a lot of EM markets are going to face. But if we think about the longer term, if we're investing for 20, 30 years, do we think it still makes sense to allocate to EM? I've got to say I'm kind of an optimist. You know, I think that many of these countries will become developed. But of course, the question is, it won't be an EM country if that happens. So if you buy an EM index and just leave it for a long period of time, you'll end up with an index which ceases to exist. Now, that's not a great marketing story, I don't think. But, you know, eventually, I think these will come into the DM fold and the whole classification of DMEM will become kind of irrelevant. Do you think so? I'm less convinced of that than I used to be. So I think there are some trends which kind of go opposite to that, such as global trade maybe slowing down, Western economies looking to reshore some of their supply chains, which I think hurts that manufacturing-led growth that a lot of those EM countries are going for. But eventually they're going to become service-led, you know, like China's already, it has been for a long time, a service-driven economy. And I think that's ultimately what's going to happen. We'll probably get poles of trading blocks, you know, across the world, you know, an eastern trading block around China, a western trading block around the US, with fairly clear separation of countries into one of those two camps. But I'm still quite optimistic that over the long term, economic development will carry on improving. Poverty will fall globally. One of my favourite videos is that Hans Rosling video, the statistician who actually showed wealth and health increasing over time. He's got this beautiful 2D diagram, which shows the evolution of countries through time. And gradually you see people becoming healthier and wealthier. And I think that's a trend which won't end because we've got a more transparent world now and people in EM can see the quality of life outside their country. And they want that quite reasonably. And it's working. You know, we've seen many countries becoming more wealthy. And a lot of people have moved around the world to, you know, more developed countries and feed back both their capital and their knowledge back home. So as long as capital can flow freely and you can invest in foreign markets, I think it's inevitable that we will get this kind of harmonisation, if you like, of markets where anyone can invest anywhere. And so you can get a slice of the pie, whichever country you live in. I think that's inevitable. I mean, there are some really big advantages that the emerging market countries have, or some of them at least have much better demographics, for example, than the developed countries. You know, they have a younger population which I think brings ideas and innovation and a boon in consumers versus older dependent people. But it's interesting, some emerging market countries are now actually ageing themselves. Well, certainly China is, and Russia. In China, yeah. And in China, of course, there will be certain new markets which develop as a result. So, for example, it was often the case that you'd look after your grandparents, so they didn't need any kind of care. But, of course, now I suspect they'll move into the kind of Western model where, you know, they will need things like life insurance and also some kind of provision for their old age. So pension funds, for example. So if anyone in China would like to have a power hour with me to invest their pension, you're free to do that. Yeah, just get your VPN in order. That's right. <laughs> and I think it's also true that as well as demographics, there are a lot of kind of reforms that are available and seem, at least from my perspective, to be quite quick wins, right? I mean, they're very hard to implement politically in the emerging markets. But, you know, if you have the economic reforms, you know, more rights for women, better education, better infrastructure, and, you know, really get those independent institutions we talked about, the central banks and the courts, for example, then you, know, you set the scene for becoming a developed country. 
it just takes a little while. Yeah, it always amazes me to look at a world map where you can see the weightings for an ETF, say. And the one thing which really stands out is the whole of Africa is essentially just a grey area. There's just South Africa in the bottom, maybe Nigeria in the north, which are included. But the whole of the rest of Africa is pretty much excluded. It's as if it's not part of the world. So I think that will change. I think it's inevitable that will change. You know, they've got huge amounts of resources in terms of people, intelligence, ability, and not being part of markets is just, I think, just a temporary hiccup due to historical misfortune, if you like. Yeah, I think the same. The one thing that worries me is climate change. And will that scupper what should be Africa's and Asia's century? And will India become like China? I think that's the really shocking thing at the moment, which is that China's done this incredible job of developing itself, which India has struggled to do despite or perhaps because of the fact it's a democratic country. So I think that would be another massive shift. You know, if India manages to do a China, that would certainly shift the whole structure of emerging markets. If if India kind of punches its weight in terms of human capital, but also its resources. If you want to learn more about investing and you're interested by these kind of topics, then why not join our membership? We now manage that off our website, which is pensioncraft.com. There you'll get lots of members-only videos, which you can vote on, and you get to join our discussion on our Slack channel to discuss things like emerging markets. Okay, each episode we ask a dumb question of the week. And we're looking for you to submit your own, which you can do by emailing us at mhr at pensioncraft.com. The question this week comes from one of our listeners, John, and he's asking how are ETF shares created and destroyed? He's kind of interested, how does the basket of shares which forms an ETF stay in line with the price of all those shares in the ETF? Now, this is very exciting because it's to do with arbitrage. So uh, (laughs) I love arbitrage. But the idea behind arbitrage is you've got two things which are effectively the same. If that's true, they should trade at exactly the same price. If there is a misalignment, you can sell the one which is more expensive, buy the one which is cheaper, and make a risk-free profit. So that's the idea behind arbitrage. So here the arbitrage would be, you've got a unit of an ETF, which clearly is just a portfolio of stocks, and then you've got the actual value that the ETF trades at, the price it trades at. Now, if the two get out of line with each other, what you'd like to do is to sell the one which is more expensive, buy the one which is cheaper, and bring them back in line with each other. So this whole process is called the creation redemption process for ETFs. Now, the way this plumbing actually works in practice for the markets for an ETF is that the fund manager, let's imagine that it's ARK, for example. Okay, we always imagine that it's ARK. (laughs) (laughs) The idea is that they actually delegate the job of creation and redemption to someone called an authorised participant. Now, that could be anyone, but it's usually an investment bank. Right. An authorised participant, that sort of implies that they are special in some way and accredited. Special in the sense of being immensely wealthy and having a special place in markets. Oh, you're an authorised participant, are you, Roman? If only. If only. (laughs) Because what they get to do is to make these risk-free profits. That's the benefit of being an authorised participant. They get to make this free money, if you like. But let's say that lots of money flows into ARK and suddenly the fund has to create more ETF units because it's an open-ended fund. That's the idea. So what happens is the authorised participant will buy a basket of stocks and, you know, they'll be in line with the actual weightings in the ETF. And then they'll deliver that basket of stocks to the fund manager, to Cathy, and Cathy will give them a unit of her 
ETF. Yes. Right? Usually it's done in groups of 50,000 stocks, 50,000 ETFs, but that's the idea. You deliver the stocks, you get one ETF unit or a certain number of ETF units. So that's a creation process. And then what does that authorised participant do with that unit it's been given? Well, then you can take that unit and sell it on in the market. Okay, sell it to me. Yeah. And, and that way, if there is a difference between the prices, you know, they'll get to pocket the difference. Now, of course, all the trading costs are handled by the authorised participant. So the fund manager doesn't have to worry about the trading costs. But usually for an, for an institutional investor, particularly if it's an investment bank, they can trade almost free. It's a very small trading cost which they have. So they make a profit as long as they keep the trading costs below the arbitrage profits. Yeah. So if that wasn't cost effective, they'd step back from the market. And that is a worry that sometimes this plumbing will break down when markets are stressed. So that's the creation process. The redemption process is the opposite. So the authorised participant buys the ETF on the open market. They deliver that to the fund manager, to Cathy. She gives them a basket of stocks, which they can then sell onto the stock market. Now, there are certain risks. There may be slippage in the process. So the time between being delivered the shares and being able to sell them, you know, the stock prices might go down. So maybe that's a worry. There may be some inefficiencies in the market. You know, there could be big bid offer spreads for the market if it's illiquid during a crisis. But as long as the stuff in the basket's fairly liquid, you can make these risk-free profits. So the authorised participant's happy because, you know, they get to do the arbitrage trade. The fund manager's happy because they get to effectively delegate this boring task to someone else. And it just works very, very well indeed. Now, there's a beautiful story about how this actually came to be. The guy who actually came up with this process was called Nate Most, or possibly Most. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. (laughs) (laughs) One or the other. He was a physicist, so I like that. And he was also a submariner. So he used to cruise around the Pacific in his submarine. And when he was on shore for shore leave, he noticed that all the commodity traders had this really crazy way of trading commodities. So instead of having to lug around a whole barrel of coconut oil, they just had receipts for what was in the warehouse. And that's what they trade. So he thought, why not apply this to things like portfolios of stocks? So that's how he came up with the idea of, you know, this creation redemption process. So he actually pitched the idea to Jack Bogle, who absolutely hated it. Yeah, he liked his old mutual funds, right? That's right. Jack Bogle's the founder of Vanguard, who's a sort of granddaddy of passive investing, if you like. But he said Nate Moss was a fine gentleman, but it was the antithesis of what I like. And later he said, you want people to be able to trade the S&P, but I just want them to buy and never sell it. Because of course, with an ETF, you could buy it at 10 in the morning and sell it at five past 10. Jack Bogle hated that idea. I mean, a lot of other people are sceptical of it. So I know Michael Burry is concerned with the redemption and creation process and specifically the liquidity, because you mentioned, you know, it works if there's liquidity. And if liquidity dries up or it's around smaller stocks, which always have lower liquidity, could this whole process break down and cause a systemic risk? That's what he's talked about. I mean, he is, you know, ultimate bear. So he's always (laughs) looking for these risks to exploit. But maybe he has a point here. And I think it matters how the fund is actually created. I mean, some of the funds don't buy all of the stocks in the index. So they just buy the biggies, the most liquid ones. And it turns out that actually tracks the index incredibly closely. So you don't actually touch the illiquid stuff. If that was the case, that we had an illiquid market, it wouldn't necessarily hurt those physically sampled ETFs, as they're called. But if it's complete physical replication, then yeah, that could be a problem. 
Physical replication sounds an odd thing. What's what's non-physical replication? Well, you'd have the sampling. So instead of instead of just buying all of the stocks, you buy some of them. Or in some cases, you might have a synthetic ETF where instead of buying the basket of stocks, you buy a future which tracks the index. And that way you've got a little bit of capital left over because the future's leveraged. So there's a whole bunch of financial plumbing that can go into the background. Yeah, this sounds like the kind of thing that can go wrong <laughs> when I start hearing futures and baskets and redemptions. Ah, and but the beauty of these I things. just have to trust the people that it's like when you're talking about string theory or something. I just have to nod and go, yes, it works. I understand. <laughs> no, the beauty of these synthetic ETFs is that you don't pay a certain tax called withholding tax. Because what actually happens is you trade with an investment bank who agrees to pay you exactly the returns you'd expect if you had the basket of stocks. So it's as if you actually held the basket of stocks. You receive the dividends, you receive the capital gain and loss. But in fact, the bank holds the stocks on its own balance sheet. And because banks are international, they don't pay the tax, which is usually withheld for foreign investors. They actually physically hold that basket of stocks in its country of origin. Oh, what a lovely loophole this is then, <laughs> to avoid tax. Well, it's a lovely <laughs> loophole in the sense that it increases your return over the long term a lot. Does it also increase your counterparty risk then? Indeed it does. So if the investment bank goes down, you're in trouble. So BlackRock, for example, has multiple counterparties if it's got one of these synthetic ETFs. And that reduces the counterparty risk. It doesn't eliminate it. But I think it's a really sensible thing because, you know, why would you pay extra for withholding tax if you don't have to? So I think, you know, I personally don't have trouble with the derivatives. I personally love them. But you understand them. To me, it's like I'm comfortable holding stocks or even, you know, a basket of stocks through an ETF. But when you start talking derivatives, I start scratching my head and thinking, do I trust these investment banks? You're the kind of doubting Thomas, as it were. You have to put your fingers in the hole of the ETF to see uh, the stocks inside it. But, you know, Wall Street has a history of selling us overly complicated products, which sometimes even they don't understand. So I'm not qualified enough to know which ones are the nonsense and which ones are just, you know, sensible ways of constructing a fund. Well, these are called Delta One products. Oh, OK, that's fine. Well, I mean, it's like the most boring <laughs> type of derivative, which just tracks the underlying one for one. It's not even a nonlinear payoff. So that's when derivatives really become interesting. So it is quite kind of vanilla stuff. And I, you know, I, I don't think there's that much risk in a synthetic ETF. It depends on the issuer as well. I think, you know, some asset managers like BlackRock, I'd completely trust them to manage that risk. Smaller issuers, maybe not. You know, I, I'd question whether some of the smaller ETF companies were managing the risk as well. So you get things now like ETFs, which are inverse ARC ETFs, right? And they go up when ARC goes down and they go down when ARC goes up. You get inverse three times leveraged ARC ETFs. <laughs> yeah. now, I would not touch that thing with a barge pole. <laughs> <laughs> but presumably those are presumably those are synthetic ETFs, um, and they they work fine at least in the normal market conditions. Yeah, but but then you know it's fine until it, until it isn't, and uh, you know I, I just think that I probably avoid that kind of leverage, particularly for something with like Arc. So to go back to John's original question, the answer, you know, how does the ETF stay in line? What's the creation and destruction process? It's basically there's investment banks sat in the middle doing the the hard work. Yeah. Authorised participants are investment banks. They've got deep pockets, very small trading costs, and their finger on the pulse of the markets. So they're the ones who do the plumbing work and they get paid a big fee to do it, which is this arbitrage benefit. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Remember to check out the new PensionCraft website at pensioncraft.com. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, it would be great if you could tell a friend or share it on social media so more people can learn about investing. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice. 